Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan US Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, managing editor of the Phelan US Center's blog on US politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohid Malik and I spoke with Robert J. Sampson, the Woodford L. and Anne A. Flowers University professor at Harvard University, about his new study, The Birth Lottery of History. This study followed over a thousand Americans over 23 years and looks at the effects on different age cohorts of the social transformation of crime, punishment, and inequality over the last three decades. Professor Sampson also spoke at the LSE Phelan U.S. Center event, The Birth Lottery of History, on the 15th of June. Your study, The Birth Lottery of History, followed over a thousand Americans over 23 years. Can you talk a bit about the study and how you did it and what some of your key findings are? Thank you. Sure. And first off, uh, thank you for having me here. Great to be in London. So let me start with the overall aim, and that is to understand the interaction of individual or human development and societal change. That's a tall order, and it's really hard to do. It's not done very often for a fundamental reason, and that is as we age or as we're growing up, societies are continually changing. That's known. We're changing, society's changing. But what that means is the two are confounded. That is, you really can't separate the two. Most research in at least the fields I've studied most, study of crime and deviance, but I would say even human development generally, for example, in psychology, developmental psychology, the main procedure is to study a single birth cohort of children and follow them through time. The aim of this study was to study multiple birth cohorts as a mechanism to separate out those confounding changes. And what I mean by that is what we set out to do was to study aging among different birth cohorts through historical time. And let me tell you how we did that um, before I get to the findings. We're not studying everything, although the study has a lot of different components to it. The main Interest, and I think we'll talk about mostly here today, is rest. It's a fundamental life outcome, has consequences throughout the life course. And violence, another event, if you will, in the life course that's often traumatic and has lasting consequences. So the project is called the Project on Human Development in Chicago Neighborhoods. This started back in the mid-1990s. I was actually part of the launch At the time, I was teaching at the University of Chicago. A large group of scholars, it was a collaborative effort, put together of the design of the project. And it started collecting data around 1994-1995. The key elements were what's known as a sequential or accelerated longitudinal design. And what that meant in this case was we enrolled children starting at birth. We enrolled women that were pregnant or who had just given birth. So we call that the infant or birth zero cohort. But then we also enrolled children who were three, six, nine, 12, 15, and 18. So we had these multiple cohorts. Intensive interviews with the parents or the child, often both. Then they were followed up over time. The initial part of the study went to about 2002. It was over 6,000 children that were enrolled. It's really hard to 
study and follow that many people, took a lot of money. And so the main study stopped in 2002. But later on with another colleague, the late Robert Mayer of UCLA, I followed up the PHTCN cohorts, specifically the infant, the nine, the 12, and the 15-year-old cohorts in 2012. And the reason we did that is we wanted the youngest cohort and then adolescents. So we had that separation by age. And then we followed up them up further. We interviewed them in just a few years ago, 2021, just really during the pandemic. We've engaged record searches so that we know, for example, whether or not someone was arrested or went to prison. And we have extensive interviews. Given that large body of data and mixed in with the design, the main question in the set of studies that we published over the last few years was to look at the birth lottery of arrest in a way. And the key there is to look at the relationship between age and arrest. We've known for a long time, parents have always known that teenagers are trouble. Kids are much more likely to get in trouble and get arrested, particularly as they enter those early adolescent years, peaks at about 16 to 18. And indeed, we see that in each of the cohorts. Let me simplify and just call it the older and younger cohorts. And what I mean by the older cohorts, those are the children that were born roughly 1981 to about the mid-80s. And then the youngest cohort was that infant cohort, 1995. Each of those followed what we call the age crime or age arrest curve, steep increase and then a decline. But the difference between those cohorts was quite striking. Specifically, the older cohort at the same age in the mid, uh, let's say, high risk, mid-teen years, their arrest rates were about 100% higher than the younger cohort. And so what this is saying is that developmentally at the same age, but yet in a different historical time, the arrest rates are about 100% higher. That's a very strong difference, obviously. And it's something that really heretofore has not been explored because we've been looking traditionally at the absolute levels of risk or rates of arrest within single cohorts. You, you talked about the arrest rates for those born in the 1980s differed dramatically by 100%, 100% more than those born, born, much, born later on in the 1990s. What can you tell us about the difference? Like what, what explains this difference? Yeah, it's a great question. Let me start with some of the major competing hypotheses. In the United States, as crime was going up in the 1980s, and particularly the 1990s, at the height of what we might think of as the violence and crime epidemic, there were a lot of hypotheses put out about Differing uh, birth cohorts, for example, there was the idea that there was there were super predators. That was a common term in the U.S. I don't know about it here in England. Hopefully not. But the idea was that there was a sort of a unique cohort of kids that had come up with born in single parent families. There was the crack cocaine epidemic in the United States in the 1980s, rising rates of, of violence and what was generally thought to be kind of a disorder, dysfunction. And the idea was that this is a different kind of, of a cohort. And what we, what we can 
think of then is, is what I call a cohort composition hypothesis. That means is birth cohorts can and do differ on key characteristics, demographic and otherwise, that are related to crime and later arrest. Let me give you a few examples. I, I gave you the sort of super predator. You might think of that as a propensity to crime idea that's due to things like increasing rates of family-headed households or, sorry, female-headed households or single-parent households, rising rates of poverty. Another changing characteristic in the United States was increasing immigration. So you may have a different composition in terms of the pool of immigrants who may be more or less prone to crime or arrest. Neighborhood characteristics. So what we did was to test that hypothesis. And indeed, we found that the older cohorts differed from the younger cohorts on a number of early childhood characteristics. For example, on average, their parents were more likely to live in poverty. That's one of the standard criminological predictors, kind of a classic risk factor for crime and later arrest. We found that the older cohort was more likely to live in neighborhoods with high rates of violence, with high rates of incarceration. We found differences in immigration. In other words, we found significant differences between these cohorts. Our hypothesis, however, is that while they may be important to differentiate cohorts, these early life characteristics don't explain experiences with the criminal justice system that are occurring later in life because arrest is happening in the teens and indeed 20s, continues on into the 30s, even though at a decelerating rate. So we control in the language of social science or adjusted out those characteristics and found that the rates were still much higher among the older cohorts. It decreased slightly, let's say went down from 100% approximately to, to a little bit less, but those characteristics are not explaining. So what that means then, because we're looking at the interaction of aging and period, and on the assumption that we've adjusted for all these characteristics, and by the way, we controlled for things like individual uh, propensities to aggression, a cl another classic predictor, low self-control in all these family neighborhood and individual characteristics. So the fact that the rates are still highly differential means then that the explanation is social in nature and is due to social changes that are occurring when those different cohorts are coming of age, not their individual family or neighborhood characteristics when growing up. So we've been talking up till now about arrests as kind of almost a, a monolith of, of arrests. I'd be really interested to know more about the type of arrests across the different cohorts. Are they different? And to what extent does that matter in, in, in your sort of research? Yes. Uh, another good question. It does matter. It actually leads into a hypothesis in terms of, well, what is it then about societal change, independent of all these characteristics of the, ch of the children when they were younger? That has to do uh, with one major hypothesis, which is the, what I'll call the drug war hypothesis. We know that in the United States, there was a policy change that led to increasing rates of arrest, even for low-level drug 
use, such as marijuana. Although there was that cocaine epidemic in the late 80s, which led to a lot of violence. But one plausible hypothesis is that, well, the reason we're seeing these high arrest rates was because police were more likely to arrest for drugs, and these kids were either using drugs or they were just arresting them for drugs more. And therefore, that's what accounts for the higher rate, and it's really not other crimes. So what we did, we did several things. First of all, at the individual level, that is looking at the trajectories of the arrest for the children, we removed all drug arrests. So we can say, oh, let's look at drug arrests. Now let's look at non-drug arrests. More than that, actually, we looked and published the trajectories for violence, for property, for other crimes. Lo and behold, the same pattern occurs. It's a bit sharper for drug arrests. What that means is, or my interpretation is that the drug war hypothesis is partially correct because the differential is greatest for drug arrests. That said, there's still a very large difference for the other types of crime. The other thing we did was to look at social variations, not within our cohort, but beyond the cohort within the larger social context. So we looked at, for example, rates of drug use, because that's another kind of hypothesis. Well, maybe the reason the arrest rates were coming down was because drug use was changing, or maybe you know, when it was going up. And what about police behavior of, in this case, the Chicago Police Department, which is the largest unit in Chicago, is the largest city. We followed kids wherever they moved, by the way. Most stayed in Illinois. Uh, we only have, we have arrests for the entire state of Illinois, but we focus mainly on Chicago. And we saw a couple things. One, if you look at different types of drug use, it's kind of shocking in a way, such as marijuana, but also many other drugs. For the most part, it's quite flat across the time. So you look at the 90s and into the 2000s, you just see this pretty much of a flat line of drug use. And we use surveys to measure that outside of our sample. We use the national survey, also see a pretty flat line. So that suggests it's not use that's driving this. It's a policing change. It's an institutional change in how drugs were policed. What I think is really interesting about it, though, is it goes against the timing of many of the arguments about mass incarceration in the war on drugs, because the language that we often hear is that the punitive state led to this drug war and increasing rates of arrests that continued. But what we saw is that around, around 2005, approximately, drug use, again, was flat, but drug arrests collapsed. They literally just fell to levels 75, 90% below what they were in 1995. That's a tremendous change, and it doesn't comport well with the idea of this aggressive policing of drugs. There's another way we can look at this too. Broken windows policing is a famous intervention in the US, although it has worldwide fame, really. Um, Chief Bratton, under Mayor Giuliani in New York City, instituted this policy of so-called broken windows policing. The idea was to be aggressive about arresting 
for low level offenses, things like drinking in public, disorder offenses, squeegee men, um, things like that. Well, what does that look like in Chicago? Another analysis we did was to separate out disorder arrests. We looked at how they were being policed over time. And again, we saw this phenomenon where starting around 2005, maybe even a little before, they started to fall dramatically. It's true in the 80s, they went up by a large amount. But in the 90s, it, particularly around the mid-90s, there started to be a plateau and then a shift downward. And by the time we get to about 2021, there's almost no disorder arrests. I mean, literally, it's like 97% or more drop in the mid-90s. So there, the idea of this broken windows policing, it's a bit bizarre, but it's actually sort of the opposite in terms of those offenses. So our interpretation, and this is a, you know, not as precise perhaps as we would like, but we estimate that about 50% of the changes between the cohorts were due to organizational institutional changes with regard to policing. The other half is due likely to larger societal forces that bear on violent and other crimes. So that is behavior, not just the operations of the criminal justice system. There's a lot of theories about why behavior changes over time. Our charge or goal is not to explain variations at the societal level, but really to explain these differences in trajectories. So I, I guess what I'd like to emphasize is, yeah, this is really about the interaction of intra-cohort or individual trajectories with the between cohort comparisons. And that allows you, under certain assumptions, to identify the, the larger social impact of change. And that has a lot of, that has theoretical and it has policy implications as well. You've also done research on gun violence in Chicago. So how does gun violence influence people's development? And do these effects differ across variables like class and race? Yeah, there's been a lot of research in the social sciences, really, on exposure to violence and its impact on later life. I think it's fair to say that the research is pretty consistent that that influence is negative, often large. Not surprising. Exposure to violence can be a traumatic event in the life course. One famous paper, uh, I think, called it the cycle of violence. So it's important to study, and we did. It's also important to see whether or not this birth lottery of history is somehow unique to arrest, or whether or not it is affecting other life outcomes, such as violence. What we did in a recent paper was to study inequalities and exposure to violence over the life course. We looked at differences by birth cohort, but also sex and race, as we did, by the way, in the rest paper. I can say a little bit more about race and class differences there. But on violence, what we found there is something a little bit different, but also some things that were shared in common with the arrest analysis. Something happened in the United States around 2000 or 15. When it comes to arrest, the story I've told is one of basically a favored cohort, that younger cohort, was aging through this period where things were getting better when it comes to the criminal justice system arresting people. But around 2015, 16, 
unexpectedly, there was a rise in violence, homicides, which we can measure well, in particular firearm homicides. There's also a spike in gun purchases, and it went up dramatically. In fact, by 2020, 2021, firearm homicides in Chicago hit an historic high, higher than they were back in the heyday of what was known as the violence epidemic. So it was a social transformation that, again, caught people unaware because we've known about the crime decline. In fact, there's been books written about the so-called great American crime decline and almost lulled us into thinking this was inevitable. This was going to continue. Well, it did for a long time, but the result of that uptick in violence had sharp consequences. One of them was that the youngest goer, born in 1995, 1996, was turning 20 just around the time that that spike went into effect. And why does that matter? Well, in terms of exposure to violence, we looked at both direct victimization, being shot, and indirect victimization, such as seeing shot. Being shot tends to happen a little bit later, around age 17 or so. Seeing someone shot tends to happen earlier in the life course, unfortunately, but quite early, around age 14. And what we see is the trajectories of exposure to violence between that oldest cohort, which was by far more likely to be arrested, and the youngest cohort. The difference in the cumulative exposure to being shot really didn't look that different. And in fact, at around 18 and later on, there was no significant difference between those cohorts. So if you think about it, you have 100% higher likelihood of being arrested. But all of a sudden, boom. We get the shift, there's almost a shift in the regime of firearm violence, which dramatically altered the risk of what was otherwise a favored cohort. In terms of seeing someone shot or witnessing violence, there was a, um, a, still a difference where the older cohort had a much higher risk. So I'm, I, I don't want to say that that younger cohort all of a sudden, you know, was totally transformed, but we know that exposure to violence is a serious and often traumatic event. So that difference, I think, is quite significant. We're also looking currently at using a gun, actually shooting more in terms of a behavioral aspect, not just witnessing or being shot, but shooting somebody. Also what we call concealed carry, which is carrying a gun. And there we see the older cohort, presumably because they were so um, much more likely to be exposed to violence in childhood or more likely to carry and use a gun um, later on. We also saw tremendous differences by sex. Not surprisingly, males much more likely to be shot, although the differences between males and females in seeing someone shot is quite, is much more moderate. In race, large inequalities, African-Americans much more likely to have been shot or be victimized by guns. That sort of race, gender, and cohort inequalities was the focus of that most recent study. In terms of the arrest story, there's some nuances there too that are probably worth noting because I've said that a lot of these individual characteristics and also social characteristics like social class and growing up in poverty can explain the cohort differences. 
but I'm not going to argue, and we don't, that these things are not important because they, in a way, tell us, we can see the way that these societal influences come, come about through their interaction with these other characteristics. What I mean by that is things like social class, race, or even individual characters, characteristics like self-control differ based on historical context. So for example, social uh, class or poverty weakened in its relationship to arrest over time. What I mean by that is that the differential, the classic differential where low income or kids in high poverty circumstances are more likely to be arrested compared to, let's say, higher income kids. Let's call that the poverty gap was much wider for the older cohorts than the younger cohorts. So in other words, the, the risk of being arrested associated with being raised in poverty was going down. That's a classic kind of interaction. In terms of social, um, other social changes that we might think about in interesting ways with relation to individual characteristics has to do with low self-control, which is one of the classic predictors of crime and delinquency. Entire books have been written about it. And indeed, we show that kids with low self-control, as measured by the standard tests for that, are much more likely to be arrested than kids with high self-control. But that's taking an individual look at it. And this study asks us to kind of flip the script, to change our mindset and look at it a different way. And one can do that by pondering the following finding. The, the high self-control kids of one cohort, the older cohort, were essentially rendered equivalent to the low self-control kids of, if you want to think about it, the next generation, it's really the younger cohort. In other words, if you draw a line across from high self-control kids, they're looking about the same as the low self-control kids of the next generation. What that means is, it's like, you know, it's a glass half full, half empty. The meaning of that changes. And it tells us something, too, about prediction and like what we can expect. Because if we'd made predictions on how much crime would be committed by the low, let's say the low self-control kids of that younger generation or younger cohort based on the behavior of the older cohort, we'd be wrong in terms of our absolute risk. So it makes a difference. Thank you. So you talked about sort of making predictions and thinking in that sort of way. And I know uh, in the criminal justice system, algorithmic tools are being used a lot in, in that sort of way. What does your research say about the use of these algorithmic tools in the U.S. criminal justice system? Yeah, so prediction is huge, as you might expect, <laughs> in the criminal justice system. It's actually huge in society. I think we've become more and more of a predictive 
risk assessment society. I mean, algorithmic tools are being used everywhere in society to predict all kinds of things. What we buy, you're being tracked, right? Every, every time you go on uh, your iPhone to look at something. So prediction is huge, huge. And what we're doing in all these things is trying to assess patterns that have not yet been revealed from past behavior. In the criminal justice system, it's quite consequential because you're predicting whether someone is going to be rearrested, is going to be a criminal, whether they should get bail, maybe whether they should go to prison. I mean, these are very consequential decisions. And the way they're made is, well, we typically have what we can, what we call classic risk factors, like having a criminal record, like maybe being raised in a single parent family, being raised in poverty. These are things that are often used to predict future arrest. Well, there's a way that we can test that very straightforwardly and see whether or not those things are stable over time. Because the underlying assumption in all these risk assessments is that the predictions that we're making now are going to hold, right, in time t plus one or some future point, which sometimes is reasonable, but other times it's not. So what we did was to take the classic risk factors that we have in our model, in our data. And then we also had another set which used dozens and dozens of variables that run the gamut, pretty much A to Z. We used the most advanced statistical tools that we could, what's known as machine learning tools, to be able to assess the combination of all these different factors. We use the older cohort, again, the cohorts that were born in the mid-1980s. We use the risk factors to predict their arrest in the high-risk years of 17 to 24, because we can measure precisely at the same ages with the younger cohort. And what we found is that we could predict pretty well. We actually did quite well um, in terms of what's technically known as calibration, where you take your model and you, you predict arrest and then you compare it to the actual arrests. You can think of it as a prediction line. And what we found is we did quite well, kind of fell right along the line. The average values of predicted and observed were the same. So to answer your question, yeah, we can do quite well predicting for that old, older cohort, but there's a rub and it's a big one. Does that then mean, or does it follow that we can predict behaviors that haven't yet been observed for the future cohort. So what we did to test that is to use the models from the older cohort and run them on the younger cohort. So we took all the same predictors, the same values in terms of that prediction model. That's the way you do it. So-called training on the older cohort and applied it to the younger cohort. What we found is that we were massively over predicting the probability of arrest for that younger cohort. That's a big deal. Up to, depending on the model, up to 90%. That's a huge error rate. It's what we call cohort bias. The cohort bias arises from these societal changes we've been talking about. But this has real life implications because if you use a risk prediction model today, 
it's what's in it has been contaminated by the, the that past history from other cohorts. And you might think, well, that's just because the crime rate went down, so maybe you can adjust your model. We do suggest that updating the algorithms is important, but it's not just that the level is changing, because the other thing that's changing, and this goes to my point earlier about the interaction of individual characteristics and societal change, it's not just that the overall rate is changing. The predictors themselves are changing. So poverty, for example, family status, single parent family status, immigrant status changed in terms of the nature of their prediction. In other words, it was predicting one cohort, not another. So that means you can't just technically tweak the model to change the, the intercept. That's a little too technical, probably. But what that means is to just adjust for the fact that the rates are changing. It's a deep problem, and it's not something that has an easy statistical fix. So we think that prediction is important. We're not trying to say don't ever use prediction. However, they need to be used with great caution, these predictive tools. At a minimum, they need to be updated. We use the example of New York City, one of the most sophisticated criminal justice agencies in the country, hadn't updated their tools for something like uh, 20 years. So that's really making a big difference, right? If you're, you're not updating. So we need to do that. We also need to potentially take into account the fact that these risk factors are changing and potentially build those into the model. That is, there are ways that you can maybe uh, weight the new models to adjust for that. But I think it's, a, it, it's really a pretty deep issue. It also, I think, goes to our conception. And that's what I'm arguing. I've argued in a paper and forthcoming book that our entire conception of risk, I think, needs to be reconceptualized. Because risk is not a property of the person, only a property of the person. And that's really fundamentally, despite what we say, that's how it works. It's your individual characteristics or your family characteristics. We need to reconsider and try to build an understanding, perhaps even among criminal justice decision makers. For example, we talk in the, in the paper about how judges and other um, agents need to confront their own kind of cognitive biases about social change, right? Do people recognize like we know it and like after the fact, it's obvious. Yes, of course, society is changing. Yet time and time again, the implications of that are not built into the way we think and they're not built into the way we use our models. So getting people to recognize, oh, wait, the world is changing dramatically or New York City is not New York City that it was 15 years ago. That needs to be immediately taken into account in terms of the decision making. Those are the kinds of things that really need to happen, in my view. This is a very wide question. <laughs> are Americans stuck with this birth lottery of history? Are there any policy responses, either the local, uh, state, or even countrywide, the federal level, that can help to overcome it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Are we stuck with the birth lottery of history, Americans? Well, 
everyone's stuck. <laughs> You're stuck with it. Everyone in the world is stuck with it because social change happens. But of course, we can't change the past. So it's not just a, a negative statement, right? I think, there, yes, there are things we can do. We can't change the past, but I think a greater recognition of the way that society changes is necessary to think about on policies, particularly child development um, policies, because while we may not be able to predict the exact form, like we didn't really, no one really predicted the great American crime decline. No one really predicted the epidemic of firearm violence or this huge increase in 2016 up to 2021. So that's a false hope that policy, you know, that policy can, can predict. But I think two things. One, you know, I'm, I'm not a policy maker. I'm a social scientist. So my first aim is to get it right and figure out uh, the facts right and, and propose theories to account for it. And I do think that changing our theoretical conceptions is important here in terms of changing the idea of thinking differently about the concepts of propensity and risk to uh, assess our theories. And that's also relevant, though, I think, in terms of policy, because if you don't know the future, the one thing you can do, though, is be prepared. Sounds simple, but oftentimes our policies, particularly, I have to say, unfortunately, in the United States, are always after the fact. They're not proactive so much in terms of their planning. It's more, oh, it happens, so you got to get it together, right? I mean, that's kind of the way it is. We're a very individualistic society and people are on their own. There's government help and hurricanes and so forth. But a lot of the other stuff is left to individuals. That's a choice. That is a policy choice because you can have policies to tackle head on the known causes of violence, the known more predictors of well-being among childhood. And before that uptick in crime happens, or here's the true test, you got a, the great American crime decline. You should, we should be doubling down on violence prevention. It kind of goes against the grain of thinking, right? Because you like, well, okay, violence is going down, so we don't have to uh, worry about it. It's exactly the right time. Uh, to be doing it in a way, because we know things will shift. So I think it's not so much a specific policy, but we know, it, and th I mean, this isn't my area of research, but in terms of certain kinds of policing policies that um, are based on targeted patrols, not harassing kinds of patrols, but certain kinds of place-based interventions, deconcentration of poverty in terms of the high rates that we see in the United States of deep, deep poverty, concentrated racial segregation, the extent to which African-Americans in the United States live in communities that are much more isolated and higher rates of violence and poverty. These oftentimes are policy decisions that can be acted on and should be acted on. Child welfare treatment. These are things that will not necessarily bear fruit now, 
And there is even a risk, by the way, in terms of child treatment and interventions, because if you think about the cohort bias that I talked about, it doesn't necessarily mean that if we intervene in the early lives of children, it will have the same payoff as that that is shown in studies, let's say, based on a cohort, just one cohort that was followed for 25 years. So there's a cohort bias in that, too. And that should be built in. And so I guess maybe my last point would be, and this is a sheer um, you know, policy point, is that these, all these things need to be evaluated, taking into account these, these sorts of cohort biases. That's something that, that could be done. It's not so much do this, but rather a social change <laughs> um, assessment should be done for all these different interventions. I really found interesting when you mentioned the uh, the importance of reconceptualizing risk. And I wonder how different is that from reconceptualizing security and what it means to be secure? Because if we take an issue like policing, for instance, and if, if policing and policing policies are to some extent based on these risk assessments and sort of, you know, uh, going off of history and, and of patterns, it can lead to certain policies that may on one hand be argued to encourage security, but perhaps it actually doesn't, you know, through over-policing and through the way that policing is carried out. I mean, how, how important do you think that step of reconceptualizing security is in, within this sort of work of, of seeing these patterns of arrest and of, of trying to map out how this sort of can play out in the future? Absolutely important. I like that question because... Our very notion of security and how to police security is so often based on the past. Policies get built up. Myths get built up. I talked about the idea of the super predator. Well, the police took that seriously. Well, we've got to crack down. We've got to do things differently. And that doesn't necessarily just stop, even though what was thought to propel that initial intervention has changed. But all kinds of levels of security stopping people on the street, forms of surveillance, to the extent that those are derived from findings due to a certain point in prior history that have changed, then yes, indeed, they may be inefficient. They may be unfair. I mean, I, I think there's a real sense here in which legitimacy is, is at stake too. You know, I talked about cohort bias with regard to prediction. If it wasn't clear, I mean, that has real consequences for individual lives, right? Because the idea of a false positive and a false negative, and that would apply to security too, right? No matter what the intervention, like you have a cop here in London or um, any kind of security that assesses a certain group of people to have a higher risk. If their everyday lives or their behaviors are scrutinized in a way that's different than other groups, on a prior, perhaps even, let's say, let's even say it was true that whatever that group was did have some higher risk based on some standard. So I'm not going to defend that standard necessarily, but let's just assume that it, it's true. It could still be an error and it would lead to what I would consider to be illegitimate interventions and in, in security. So I think you're absolutely right. In fact, when I, I mean, arrest is a specific incident, specific form that we can study. We have good data on it over the life course, but 
Theoretically, oh, I totally think that this applies to a, a larger conception of, you know, sort of like there's work been written on the risk society and how society's entire conception of risk changed. I mean, we've seen this, perhaps an example might be a terrorism in 2001 after 2001. Yes, there might have been a heightened risk, but if 10 years later, certain activities against certain groups are being undertaken, that's disproportionate to the actual risk, then that's a harm. And by the way, these are harms I think that people understand and experience in everyday lives, people that are targeted, which then can lead to alienation from, from larger society. So that's important because what it means is that policies that are, quote, out of date and suffer from this kind of cohort biases have unintended consequences that can actually make things worse. And not just in the United States, right? I mean, oh, totally. Yeah, I'm, I'm, this is not a U.S. Sure. phenomenon. Yeah, like if you look at, I'm sure, a whole host of countries where, you know, these things become enmeshed within your own, with the way that you look at different groups of people, right? And so it just, you just kind of continue this. <laughs> you think about it, if we're told, if certain kinds of risk assessment instruments, risk, let's call it a risk mindset, is perpetuated by the government. Well, it, that is not just about the government doing things. It's really saying to everybody that you should feel that. And then there, therefore you see people differently. I always chuckle when I come to England, right? Was it see something, say something, sort it? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm like, yeah. well, okay, um, this could have some pernicious <laughs> consequences depending on uh, what you think you're seeing. Uh, and who, you know, what group is doing it, but I mean, not to make light of that. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that it's pretty far reaching. That's what I, I, I was talking earlier about the idea of cognitive bias, that if, if we're trained to think about certain groups as having propensities that are fixed somehow, then that. It, it, that can lead to the, these sorts of unintended consequences. Obviously, I know your, your study was limited to the certain cohorts that, of course, were under examination. But do you think there's something about the fact that because these cohorts were all sort of born at a time of hyper-globalization, and this has obviously contributed massively into how our societies have changed, and actually also how we've changed as individuals, right? These things, of course, operate concomitantly. And so... I think that in itself is quite interesting. But do you think that because of this wider international context, that is probably what has contributed more to this cohort bias than like, you know, let's say if this study was done in like the 50s and 60s, and you know, maybe it wouldn't have had that same sort of um, implication. And therefore, do you think that similar trends could probably occur in the future with future cohorts um, as we become more interconnected and as phenomena like immigration perhaps increases, decreases and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, one way to think about it is this. If there was no social change, just, in other words, just imagine a world that's static, where there's no social change. In that world, different cohorts coming of age, turning 15, turning 20, through time, wouldn't look any different, right? The world wouldn't look different. So there wouldn't be any cohort differentiation. It's a useful exercise to think about what, how you get at cohort differentiation. So you're right. I mean, it's only when you have social change, and here radical social changes. We're talking about 
two, 300 increase chance of being arrested uh, in, you know, societal level rates, incarceration, declines in crime, firearm violence, but many other things, right? We're talking about economic trends, immigration trends, so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure exactly what would be found. My guess is that in a general hypothesis would be the more stable, homogenous, unchanging the society, the less social cohort differentiation there would be. That said, boy, there's been some eventful times <laughs> since the 1950s, 60s, right? I don't see social change stopping. <laughs> it's just going to keep happening and there's going to be forms of it we can't even imagine. Like, who would have dreamt? Well, someone did, I'm sure. But, you know, a year ago, who was talking about artificial intelligence? Think about the conversations that's going to change the world one of the biggest threats to humanity that exists. This conversation wasn't being had two years ago. Think about the massive changes that are going on. And by the way, AI, oh my God, think about how that could be employed in terms of the risk society. And it will happen. So I think, and you know, if you think about it historically in the long run, I think the way, the best way to think about it is that the anomaly is the unchanging and you get a little, you know, little epics here and there. Um, but the norm is change and often radical social change, which to me as a sociologist then means that's where the action is. <laughs> I'm just saying individuals are important. Families are important. But the real big changes are happening at that level. And they're just bearing down on us and shaping our lives. And sometimes in retrospect, people can nod and say, yeah, OK, that makes sense. But then the next day, go back to business as usual, which is the individual, which is the family, which is the risk that's residing somehow in a fixed sort of characteristic. I think that's a great place to, to finish up on where we're sadly out of time. Just remains for me to say, Professor Robert Sampson, thanks so much for speaking to The Ballpark this afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me. Robert J. Sampson is the Woodford L. and Anne A. Flowers University Professor at Harvard University. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor Robert Sampson for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohit Malik, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk or you can send us a tweet at lsc underscore us. And please tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan US Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>